scripture reading this evening is Romans 1, verses 18 through 24. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because of what they may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became fruitful in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creepy things. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanliness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Good evening. Good to be together once again this Lord's Day. We're thankful for the number that we have that has come back out this afternoon to worship God and to consider some things from His Word. We're going to be continuing a series of lessons that we've had sporadically throughout this year. Perhaps you'll remember several months ago we had a couple of lessons on answering atheistic arguments that the atheist might pose. They might look at, for example, the problem of suffering. And they might appeal to the fact that there is suffering in this world, and so because of that, there is either not a good God, or that He's not all-powerful, because if, he, if there is suffering in the world, he could, and if He was all-powerful, then He could just make suffering disappear. And so... They use that as a position to say that there is no God. Or they might look at this notion of eternal conscious punishment in hell and say that a good and loving God would not subject someone to eternal torment. And so there is no good and loving God. Those are arguments that we have tried to address, and hopefully you might remember those. If you don't, I would encourage you to go back to our website and you would find those sermons. I think they were back in February and March of this year. It's been some time now. But those are some arguments that an atheist might pose to suggest to a believer that there is no God and that they might try to get you to believe in what they are saying. They might try to poison the well, so to speak. But if you were to make a pro-argument for the existence of God, how might you go about doing that? How could you prove that there is a God? That might become a little bit more challenging, right? Because what you would probably not be able to do is take out your Bible and show them all the verses that would just teach very clearly to us that there is a God. 
Not that the Bible can't prove that there is a God. It's just that because of where the atheist is, the agnostic is, or someone who is just doubting the existence of God, they probably already have a lot of questions about the authority of the Scriptures. And so it's just a circular reasoning for them if you appeal to Bible verses that would show there's a God. They would, whenever you might say, look outside, look at the creation, that how did it get here? If they are an atheist or an agnostic especially, they would probably already be tending to believe in the theory of evolution and that everything has come through a reason of naturalism, that everything that we see here has just naturally occurred over a long period of time. And so telling them that you look around and you see the creation, you see the trees, you see the beauty of it, and you say that that's a proof of there's a creator, that there is someone who designed that, they would probably not agree with that. And so how would you go about convincing you? And I don't want you to misunderstand that I believe those are good proofs for God's existence. I don't want you to misunderstand me and say, Sean said that you can't look at the creation and see that there's a God. No, I think you can. Because I don't believe things come into existence from nothing. But my point is, someone who is an atheist or an agnostic or someone who is a skeptic, they aren't beginning at the same place that I am. They already have trouble with that fundamental point that this all came from a design or a creator. So how would you go about speaking and conversing with someone who does not even have the same suppositions that you might have? And there might be several ways that a person would try to go about trying to prove at least the theoretical and logical existence of God to an unbeliever, an atheist, or an agnostic. And when speaking to people who believe in the existence of God, there is little that we can do. You could probably go ahead and show them a few Bible verses and that would just reaffirm their faith. However, we or trying to think about how would we talk to someone who denies God's existence altogether. And as I said, you could probably cite every Bible verse there is about the creative power of God, but it would fall on deaf ears. So how can you go about proving to someone who does not believe in God's existence that belief in God is logical? You may not even have to convince them that there is a God, but how can you at least show them that this is a logical thing to do because they believe we are very illogical. They believe that we have abandoned reason. That we have abandoned reason and that we are just believing in fairy tales and fantasy. That's how they subject God and the Bible. And it's just myth. It's just stories. It's just a collection of all these different ideas that People of ancient times who are much lesser and much inferior to us and our intellectual prowess, that they have handed down all these stories and we have just been hoodwinked into thinking and believing that it's true. So how would we go about trying to reason 
with someone like that? How can we show them that there is a logical component in belief? That whenever we say that we have faith and that we have belief in God, we're not talking about a blind faith. We're not talking about just that we're told something and we just automatically do it just like that. That our faith is built upon reason. It's built upon assurance and evidence that has prompted us to believe. In Hebrews chapter 11, the Hebrew writer, he says in Hebrews chapter 11 and in verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You think about that word conviction. Sometimes we use that to talk about someone who is just emphatic in their belief system, that they are convicted about it. They might be wrong, but they, are, they have conviction at least, right? That's not how the Hebrew writer is using the term here. He's using it in a very legal sense. That if you have someone in a court of law, for instance, and there is a charge against them and they might be convicted, how does that come about in our country you have to have evidence that gets you to that conviction. And I think that's exactly how the Hebrew writer is using it here. He's not speaking about this faith as a blind faith. It's actually the very opposite. It's a faith that is built upon evidence that leads us to the conviction that God exists. He goes on in verse 3, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. We affirm that. And so to, tonight, what I want us to do is look at one of the what's called the classical arguments for the existence of God. And that argument, there are several arguments, and we'll look at a few of the other ones later on. But what I want us to do this evening is present and think about what is called the moral argument for the existence of God. Because I believe that this is probably the most important one that we need to understand, that we need to recognize, and we need to be able to uh, explain this perhaps to our friends and our neighbors as we live in a more and more secular world. We are going to have to be able to converse with people who are skeptics and who doubt the existence of God. We're going to have to be able to converse with friends and with neighbors and with, social, with our co-workers and people that we associate with. We need to be able to converse with them and show them that it is perfectly reasonable and logical to believe in God. And the moral argument, I believe, does that very efficiently and very effectively. And so I think it also shows the atheist's fatal flaw in embracing a position of relativism. And what I mean by relativism is that everything is subjective, everything is relative, that nothing is absolute. And we'll talk some more about that in just a moment. But this evening I want us to familiarize ourselves with the moral argument for the existence of God. And that begins with understanding that there is this idea of how of terms that we are going to need to know a little bit about as we have tried to define these in the past in a couple of other lessons theism is the belief that god created all things now you could be a theist and you might not be a christian 
Because you might be someone who uh, is of a different world religion that believes that there is an all-powerful Creator and God who brought all of this into existence while not believing in the Bible. So a theist does not necessarily mean that you're a Christian, but all Christians are theists, that we believe in God who created all things. Pantheism is more like uh, this understanding of Star Wars and the Force, that there is a force that is binding and connects all living things, and that is what the pantheist believes God is, that God is just this living force that is in and around us, but that He is not personal, that He cannot be found, that He does not demonstrate personal qualities or characteristics and things like that. And so we are are not pantheists. I believe the Bible rejects that notion because it does subject God to being a person and having personhood and a personality. But atheism is the antithesis of all of that. It is the belief that there is no God at all. And naturalism is what kind of would fall under atheism, is that it's the belief that everything came into existence naturally over long periods of time and apart from any intelligent design or plan. Those are just some terms that we want to be familiar with as we think through some of these things tonight. But what the moral argument for the existence of God, it begins with morality. That where did morality come from? Where did our sense of right and wrong come from? Where did it originate from? That's an important question. Because if there is no God, and if there is no one Creator or lawgiver, then what would explain the existence of morals? And if there is this, if there are, if there is no God, then what would subject me to following your morals? If you have a different standard of morals, why must I adopt your standard of morals? And why can I not just do what I want to do? But that's not how our society works or functions, is it? We understand on a very general level that there is at least some morals that are good and some morals that are bad, right? There are, there's right and there's wrong. And so another question that we need to also think about in response to the naturalist is how does the theory of evolution and naturalism explain a collective consciousness of morality? I'm not here to suggest that some people, they might say, well, that's okay. You know, adultery, that would be okay. They, they may not frown upon that. They may not blink an eye at that. But how do we have this collective consciousness of something being right or something being wrong. For instance, murder. How have we come to recognize that murder is wrong in all levels of society, in every country, in every nation, across the globe? Murder is wrong. How do we come to that kind of collective idea that crosses and transcends boundaries and borders? These are some questions that lead us into this moral argument for the existence of God. What would make us assume that we are right while others are wrong? 
about our morals. And if morals are completely subjective and that they are relative to time and place or conditions, will morals and ethics change once again? Will what is today frowned upon, let's say murder, will that be accepted in a thousand years? If not, why not? And so naturalists and atheists and agnostics must logically accept that morality is relative and not absolute. That's something that they have to logically begin to accept. And so what we want to deal with is that very issue. Do we accept that premise? Is that something that is scriptural or not? And if morality is relative, then why would we punish criminals? Why would we punish criminals like sex offenders or child molesters or murderers? Why would people argue for social justice? You think about that. If morals are relative and that there is no absolute standard and moral law that we are all subject to, then how could we begin to argue for social justice if there is no such thing as justice? other than what you believe is right and what I believe might be right. How could we begin to show people and say that racism was very unjust and very evil? I find that to be somewhat ironic because in our society, the people that seem to clamor the most, at least that get the most attention, is from the social justice warrior is the type of person that would be screaming that racism is wrong. And yet they're also probably the type that would believe in naturalism, in evolution, be atheists, agnostic, or skeptics that would deny the existence of God or at least that your, the way you understand God is not binding upon them. And so again, they have this very relative mindset that there is no absolute morality other than the morality that they want to propose and that they want to fight for. So if morality is merely relative, then why would we be able to... How can you even converse in these kinds of terms? And I think something from the outset that I want to say is that we would never want to imply that atheists cannot be moral people. I think that's something that can be a little bit of a misnomer in dealing with this argument. There might be good moral people who would be atheists and agnostics. They, want, they might want to do a world of good. They might want to help people in need. They may have a very compassionate and giving and caring heart. But what they are doing is they do that in spite of what they believe, not because of it. And I find it very interesting as well that they would bring up morals, as we will see later in, in some quotes, that why would they bring up morals and justice and a sense of right and wrong in trying to prove, disprove the existence of God in the argument that they would present against suffering? That here is suffering in this world. And so why would a good and all-powerful and all-loving God allow 
suffering. And who's to say that that's not good? If everything is just completely subjective and relative, we'll see how that argument turns against them. But nevertheless, they are at least logically inconsistent when they appeal to any sense of morality and justice when they do make these arguments. Because where did this sense of right and wrong, morality, justice come from? And so why would they be able to argue that Hitler and the Holocaust were wrong or any other form of genocide? When there is no absolute standard of what is right and wrong. Because if morality is relative, then everyone's sense of personal morality would be acceptable. Whatever you want to do would be right. Whatever I want to do would be right. And as long as you want to do what you want to do, and as long as I get to do what I want to do, then no one could say, hey, Sean's wrong and this person's right. Either morality is relative or it is absolute. And I contend that morality is not subjective nor relative to any particular group of people at a particular point in time. Morality is absolute. Turn with me to the Gospel of John in John chapter 8. I want us to look at a couple of verses here in John the 8th chapter. In John chapter 8 and in verses 31 and 32, as Jesus is teaching here on this occasion, He says, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in Him, If you continue in My Word, you are truly disciples of Mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. I think this is an important part of our discussion as we think about truth and morality and what Jesus is saying here, that He says if you know the truth, the truth will make you free. What some people would say is that, well, you can have your truth and I can have my truth. That shows us this discrepancy of moral relativism or this idea that your truth and your morals, they might be something that are not binding upon me. And so they might begin to say that there is no absolute truth. Which is ironic because that's an absolute statement, isn't it? And that actually ends up proving that there is absolute truth. Because they cannot form their argument without making it an absolute. Right? And if you're thinking like I do, if you have trouble with the Star Wars and only Sith deal in absolutes. That's an absolute statement. That might go to deal with some of the problems with the Jedi and the Sith, but we don't have time to get into that tonight. But if you want to talk Star Wars, we can do that later. But that is certainly something that is an absolute statement. There is no absolute truth. And so to express their view, they cannot do so without making an absolute statement. That shows that there is absolute truth and there is this understanding, at least intellectually, that there is an absolute standard which would apply to everybody. And someone might think, well, there is absolute truth. Let's, let's grant for argument's sake that there is an absolute truth, but you know what? You can't find that truth. They can't, we, we cannot know what is true. 
which I want to know, how did they come to know that? How did they come to know that you can't know the truth? Do you see the redundancy and the absurdity of their argument? It's an exercise of futility and it's self-defeating when they might make these kinds of statements. But Jesus tells us that you can know the truth and the truth will make you free later on in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 14. In John chapter 14 and in verse 6, Jesus he said to His disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. That There is only one way to come to know God. There is only one standard and one absolute way. And that truth is found in Jesus Christ and we must know Him. If we are going to have fellowship with God and with Jesus Christ. And so, what is this moral argument for God? It has to do with morals, obviously, as we've been setting everything up for this point. And the moral argument for God might be expressed in slightly different terms, in slightly different ways. And there are at least three major ways that I've run across that people would express this. And they do it in the form of a syllogism, where they start with premise A, then there's a sub-premise, and then it leads us to a conclusion. And so the first one in all of these, it's expressing basically the same idea, that every law has a lawgiver. And so if every law has a lawgiver, then there is this other acknowledgement that there is a moral law or supposition that someone might be affirming. Therefore, there is a moral lawgiver. Or expressed in a slightly different way, for an objective moral standard to exist, God must exist. An objective moral standard does exist, therefore God exists. You see the logic and the reason behind these statements. If God does not exist, now this is an interesting one. This third one, that it's stated from the negative standpoint. That if God does not exist, moral, objective moral values and duties do not exist. The second part B, objective moral values and duties do exist, therefore God exists. What all of these do are show us that there is at least a logical component in how we can think and arrive to this understanding that there is a logical component to faith and belief in God. We're going to be working with the one on the far left of the screen tonight because I think number two and number three, the second and third one in those boxes are good. The, first, the second one, that middle one, it does assume that there is God. So it assumes the conclusion really in its premise. And so I, I think that could be problematic for someone who does not believe in the existence of God. So we're going to mostly deal with the one on the far left of the screen tonight. But what these are all syllogisms, and they're all presented in a logical form, and yet they still must be proven to be correct. And so you think about the first statement, every law has a lawgiver. I think that is probably assumed to be true. And I don't know how many people could argue or disagree with that. 
Because in government, it might be speaking of those who create legislation. It might be in our form of government, we might be talking about Congress. But there are lawgivers or lawmakers. If it's in a monarchy where there's a king, he might have absolute control to make legislation and give a law and make a decree. But the law did not just create itself. The lawgiver has the authority to create a law while also having the authority to enforce the law. And so I think this is probably a safe assumption to begin here that every law has a lawgiver. If anyone disagrees with that, then they would be free to disagree with that. But I don't know how you could deny that kind of claim. And so you continue to go on from there. Every law has a lawgiver. And then there is a moral law. Now here's where we could begin to start having some disagreements. However, what some people have acknowledged is that everyone knows certain principles. This writer said, there is no land where murder is virtue and gratitude is vice. We're saying thank you and using good manners. That, that's not treated as a bad thing ever in any society, anywhere in the world. We don't glorify murder, do we? Everyone knows those principles. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he said, think of a country where people were admired for running away in battle, or where a man felt proud of double-crossing all the people who had been kindest to him. You might just as well try to imagine a country where two and two made five. There is this innate sense of morality. It's sometimes called the conscience. Sometimes it's called the natural law. Sometimes it's called nature's law. Or we're going to call it the moral law. What's better? If I were to ask you, what's better? Love or hate? You're going to say love, right? Does anyone want to claim hate is better than love? Okay, I don't see any hands. What's better, courage or cowardice? Anyone want to say cowardice? Alright. What's, what's better, telling the truth or lying? Which one's better? Anyone going to claim lying's better? Okay. If you do, I know what I'm preaching on next week, by the way. <laughs> we understand that there are certain things that are just wrong, don't we? We understand that there are things that are good and right, don't we? C.S. Lewis, he continues in Mere Christianity to say, first, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, that they do not in fact behave in that way. They know the law of nature, they break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. We know that there's a way that we ought to behave. That doesn't mean we always do it. But we know what's right. And you know a good sign of when you break that moral law? Your conscience gets at you, doesn't it? 
You, you feel guilt. You feel shame. You recognize that you have done something wrong. And that is all going to this fundamental proof that there is a moral law that we are all recognizing that is ingrained in a part of us and who we are. And without the moral law, there would be no such thing as human rights. I want you to think about the words of Thomas Jefferson as he penned in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. You think about that language right there. That these truths are self-evident. We don't even have to prove evidence. We don't have to bring evidence because we all know it. That all men are created equal that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What beautiful words. Now, we know that there have been times in this country where we have not lived up to those standards. And shame on us. But, just because we did not live up to these standards doesn't mean that this is not true. And you think about human rights and the discussion about human rights or social justice and things of that. How do we know that racism is wrong and abusing and molesting children is evil or murder is wicked? How would we know that? If it were not for a natural, objective, an absolute moral standard. And these would just be simply opinions equivalent to me saying vanilla ice cream is better than strawberry ice cream. Now I might get some fighting words if I preach that, right? (laughs) But if we deny that there is any absolute moral standard, then... We just reduced it down to opinion. And for those who are advocates for social justice, that they typically are opposed the ideas of absolute morality. They might be angered when you oppose homosexuality, right? They might be angered about that, and they would want to put that under social justice. And yet their whole argument depends on the existence of a moral law doesn't it? That there is a moral and just and right and proper way to treat other people. To which they are not wrong about that. There is an absolute standard. But that's my argument, not theirs. Yes, racism is wrong and evil. Slavery was a gross miscarriage of justice. I won't defend that. Gay bashing is wrong. However, if morality is merely relative, then why can we not outlaw Islam? Or why can we not outlaw abortion? You see, there would be no right to an abortion because the notion of human rights cannot exist in moral relativism since there is no absolute moral truth. There is no right to anything. There is no right way or wrong way. So how do we know that Hitler was wrong and that to just use an a icon, if you will, a, 
How, do we, how would we know that Mother Teresa was a representative of good? How would we be able to defend the actions of one and decry the actions of another? And I would suggest to you that we know that Hitler was absolutely wrong because we knew that there was something that was absolutely right and good. Because there is a moral law. And anyone who would argue that morals are relative, just try to treat them unfairly. And they will quickly cry foul because of unfair and unjust treatment. To which, all you need to ask is, how can I be treating you unfair since there is no absolute right or wrong or absolute morality? C.S. Lewis, he continued in Mere Christianity, and he said, my argument against God, because what's interesting about C.S. Lewis is that he began as an atheist. And he began reasoning himself into a belief that there is a God. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? He tries to take this all the way back to the beginning. Where did that sense of morality come from? He says, a man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction against it? Of course I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed. Two, for the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust. You see what he's saying here? That he pointed to all this injustice in the world, all this wickedness, all this immorality, and that caused suffering. And how could God allow that to happen if there really is a God? But then he begins thinking, where did I get this sense of morality come from? Where did I get this sense of justice to come from? And so, well, okay, if... I'll give up that. But then, oh wait, I give up my argument against God because my argument against God depended on this argument of injustice. And so he says, the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. He came to realize that there is a moral law. And where does that moral law come from? That's the moral argument for the existence of God because if there is a moral law 
and if every law has a lawgiver. Therefore, the conclusion of the matter is there is a moral lawgiver. Now C.S. Lewis, he cautions, and I think this is the caution that we all have to recognize with this moral argument for the existence of God. We have not yet proven that the Bible and the God of the Bible, Yahweh, in the Old and New Testaments, that we haven't proven that He is God, right? Or that we have to all follow Him. We haven't proven that yet. But what we have done is proven that there is a logical and a reasonable element in our faith in God. So much so that C.S. Lewis, he recognized this limitation. He says, do not think I am going faster than I really am. I am not yet within a hundred miles of the God of Christian theology. All I have got is a something. That's a capital S, something. Which is directing the universe and which appears in me as a law urging me to do right and making me feel responsible and uncomfortable when I do wrong. Now he's just speaking purely from a logical standpoint right here. He's just recognizing that I have not yet proven the existence of the God of the Bible. And we don't have time to explore all of these things tonight, so if you would like to jot these down, I will try to go through this a little bit slower here. But Yahweh and the God of the Bible, I believe, is the moral lawgiver and the absolute best and only explanation for morality because... As you read in Psalm 119, as David is praising God for His law and His commands, he says that His commands are given for our good, for our benefit to keep us from sinning, not to encourage us to sin. But throughout the Old Testament, especially as you see the children of Israel deal and grapple with idolatry, and as their neighbors were fully idolatrous, What idolatry was, it was just an excuse for immorality of all kinds of evil. Where there was all kinds of sexual immorality, there was immorality of such a kind that they would even give their kids to the god of Molech to make them pass through the fire. Think about that. That's what idolatry was. And it is still that way today. Our idols just aren't made of graven images. God of abortion and things of that nature. Those are the idols that we uphold as a society. And this one moral law came from the one God that is affirmed in the Old Testament Scriptures. God is the One who created all that exists. appreciated very much our opening prayer as we praised God who gives us our very existence, our life and our breath and all things. God is the One who created that and gave us this life. And He is the one who commands all people to repent of their sins. Because if He is the one who created all things and He is the one who gives us the law and His commands are meant for our good, He is the one who tells us to repent 
for our good so that we can be saved. And He is not an impersonal God who cannot be found or known. He is the One who sent His only begotten Son to this world to die for us and for our sins. He is the absolute best and the only explanation for morality. But as we began in our study and we had in our reading Romans chapter 1, you see what happens when people begin to remove God from the equation. In Romans chapter 1 and in verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. As I mentioned earlier, I do believe that you can look at God's creation because I don't believe that things just come into existence without a cause, without a creator, without a designer. I have a phone. I bet everyone else has one here too. You might even be using your Bible on something like this and reading verses. Did we just collect a lot of parts together and some glass and things, whatever is all in here, and just set off a little bomb or something and boom, we got this in our hand? Is that how that came about? Or did we just sit there and waiting and watching and over a thousand years? I mean, if you want to try this, go ahead and be my guest. Uh, but, you know, wait for thousands of years for, for that to just develop into a phone? No. It's absurd. And yet, that's what people believe about how this creation, this world, and the universe came into existence. And you had all the right ingredients and it just took billions of years and then boom, now you have it. You just look around and you know because we understand things don't just come from nothing. But whenever you remove God out of the equation, you see what happens, don't you? In verse 24, he says, Therefore God gave them over in their lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Homosexuality. That's what happens when people abandon the natural order of things that God created and that God established and set forth. He goes on, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind 
to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And if you think that's the end of the list, continue reading. In verse 32, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. You don't even have to be guilty of practicing the things as long as you're giving them a pat on the back and saying, hurrah, go get them, do what you want to do. You fall under the same condemnation too. Now you might be surprised to think that Paul is not talking about 21st century United States of America right there. He's describing life in Rome in the first century. But when people rebel against God, they turn against the natural order of things. Homosexuality becomes prevalent. Unrighteousness, wickedness, murder, strife. Do we have any of that today? People who are disobedient to their parents. People who are without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. They are without excuse. Because this is what happens when you remove God out of the picture. This is what society looks like. But when you put God back into the picture, there's a sense of morality, isn't there? There's a sense of morality that we want to subject ourselves to because we recognize there is a limit in what is good and what is right. And that we should not go beyond those things. And if we do not turn to God as a society, as a country, then it leads to corruption of all morals and ethics. And I find that to be fascinating. For anyone who has a problem with the moral argument for the existence of God, they say, Sean, that's just a bunch of syllogisms, that's just a bunch of logic and reasoning, and we don't need any of that. Because that doesn't really prove what you're trying to prove then explain to me when we remove God out of the picture why life becomes like what Paul's writing about in Romans chapter 1. Where there are no morals. You see, when you remove God, you remove any sense of morality. And that is what rises on the national level, the societal level. That's why the Proverbs are filled with wisdom and, and what Solomon says in Proverbs 14 and 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Some people say you can't legislate morality, and honestly, I just fundamentally disagree with that. If you mean by you can't legislate morality and that you can't enforce people to follow morals, well, okay, I acknowledge that. 
But God has given us a law where He has legislated morality and people don't follow that, right? But that doesn't stop Him from legislating it. But when there is legislation of morals, it shapes our thinking of what is right and what is wrong. It trains us to recognize that this is a good thing and this is a bad thing. I think we do need to get back to where we try to legislate morality in our country. Because if you can't legislate morality, then we need to abandon any sort of legislation against sex offenders or murder or theft. Because those are all moral issues. What we have to recognize that we will all stand before God. We will give an account for our morals. Paul said we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We will give an account for how we have lived our life, whether it was good or whether it was bad, whether we were moral or whether we were immoral. Are you ready to stand before Christ? Are you prepared for that? The moral argument is a powerful argument for God's existence. Simply put, if morals exist, they came from somewhere. And I believe it points us to the conclusion that God exists. And if morality exists and God exists, then we must be ready to stand before Christ. Are you ready? Tonight, we want you to be ready. If your life is not ready, if you are not prepared to meet the Lord in judgment, then you need to ready yourself tonight, becoming a child of God. And if you have become a child of God, but yet you've not been living faithfully for Him, will you not make things right? Coming back to the One who is willing to offer grace and forgive you of your sins. If we can help you in some way, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?